We are all aware of the dangers awaiting us in the question, what is Nietzsche today? A demagogic danger. Let the young join us. A paternalistic danger. Advice to a young reader of Nietzsche. And especially the danger of an abominable synthesis. The modern trinity Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud is taken to be the dawn of our culture. Little does it matter that we are all diffused beforehand. Marx and Freud may be the dawn of our culture, but with Nietzsche, something altogether different occurs, the dawn of a counterculture. Clearly, the functioning of contemporary society does not rely on codes. It is a society which functions according to other bases. Now, if we consider not the letter of Marx and Freud, but the development of Marxism or that of Freudianism, we see that they have paradoxically launched into some sort of an attempt at recoding. Recoding by the state, in the case of Marxism, you're sick on account of the state and you will be cured by the state, but it won't be the same state. Recoding by the family, sick because of the family and cured through the family, but not the same family. Such are, in the perspective of our culture, the elements which truly constitute Marxism and psychoanalysis as the two fundamental bureaucracies. One public and the other private, they tend to bring about somehow or other recoding of what has never stopped being decoded on the horizon. But the questions Nietzsche raises have nothing to do with this. His problem is elsewhere. It is to use all codes, past, present, and future, to introduce something which does not and will not let itself be coded, to transfer it onto a new body, to invent a new body upon which it may wander and flow upon our body, the Earth's, that of everything written. And then cue the Baudrillard. The Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our discussion today, we do want to mention we've got a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a dollar a month there, but if not, maybe leave us an awesome review on iTunes. And to that end, I actually have one to read that someone dropped this week. All right, so uh, I'm not going to actually to that end, we have one and we're going to give Luke McGowan a shout out for saying great for ripping around on mountains on motorcycle or falling asleep. <laughs> I'll take Got the ASMR theory today. Taylor and I, we're going to be looking at two of Deleuze's essays on Nietzsche to con uh, continue our little Nietzsche Deleuze exploration. And those will be nomad thought and Nietzsche and St. Paul Lawrence and John of Patmos. Right. So nomad thought is interesting. I think I mentioned this to you in passing. I don't know if we got it on the recording though, right? It's, in 67, Deleuze organized, because I mentioned, you know, Deleuze and Foucault were editing like the Nietzsche translations. Klosowski was one of the, the main translators for him. I think I mentioned that maybe last episode or uh, in 67, Deleuze organizes what we could call like the first big 
Nietzsche conference. There's actually a couple, but the first big Nietzsche conference in France at Royaumont, he's like the organizer, the head guy. So like, you know, he's responsible for um, the kind of post face, the, the like to wrap everything up. I don't think he contributes his own essay to that volume, but he's he's responsible for kind of like, I don't know if he prepared this beforehand or gave it at the conference, but for the publication of that collection, he um, he wrote like an outro, which you can find. I think it's translated. I think you can find it on LibGen, maybe just the French, but I have to check. But then in 73, there was a second conference, a second Royaumont conference, also on Nietzsche. And this is where Nomad Thought comes from. The reason why I wanted to do Nomad Thought, I think, with you is because, you know, we wanted to wrap up our Nietzschean philosophy discussion, which we technically did. But it's interesting to see where Deleuze has gone from the, what, the book in 63, his second book, the second full monograph to where he is 10 years later with Nomad Thought after having published Anti-Oedipus, right? After having published his dissertation, Logic of Sense, after kind of becoming, if you will, not only a mature philosopher, but a part of the deleuze Guattari assemblage, after having his Nietzsche interpretations also kind of changed by his reading of Klasowski, specifically Nietzsche and the Vicious Circle, which we may get to at a certain point. There's always... Yeah, we should look know. at it. Yeah. Um, it sounds pretty banging. He definitely, in Difference Repetition and elsewhere, you can see, I think in Anti-Oedipus too, they draw pretty heavily on Klasowski, although not just for that book, but in Difference Repetition, his reading of Nietzsche is very much influenced by um, Klasowski's book. We get to see a kind of... Leotard makes reference to it as well, in Libidinal Economy specifically. He does, and he also uh, draws on what the um, living currency, or I think is what it's translated as, right? That Dan and Vern had a hand in. Yeah, that sounds vaguely familiar. The um, the prostitute, what's her name? Like Eduardo or something? The, yeah. I'm pretty uh, sure that's correct. She gets off on the uh, on the job. Obviously, Klasowski is kind of interestingly. We'd have to check if Baudrillard ever draws on Klasowski. I wouldn't be surprised, right? But you know, he was influential not just for his Nietzsche translations and his novels, but uh, he's also a philosopher in that respect. So it's interesting to go to a little bit of the later Deleuze, sort of the mid middle years, if you will, the Deleuze of the 70s post Anti-Oedipus. And you can see a lot of Anti-Oedipus in this essay. It's about 10 pages. But you can also see looking forward to a thousand plateaus, you know, the nomadology plateau, the apparatus of capture, etc. So the other essay, which honestly, we can kind of save we don't have to spend too much time on it, but it's interesting that the other essay we're going to look at, Nietzsche and St. Paul, Lawrence and John of Patmos, is included in one of the last things Deleuze published, which was the essays Critical and Clinical in the 90s. And so we kind of get to span Deleuze's career in 
in Nietzsche. But I do think it's interesting, right, how much time we spend on anti-Oedipus to see maybe that's something I could start with is like throw it to you is like you said you you really enjoyed this essay, right? Yeah. So no, maybe just tell me Nomad some of your reflections. Quite a bit. I don't know. It was kind of more interesting, I thought, than the the book Nietzsche and Philosophy. Yeah. Just because I guess it's uh, you know, it's more directly tied into uh anti-Oedipus. It's more Deleuzian, if you will. Yeah. He mentions things specifically out of anti-Oedipus, like the founders of the state coming like lightning, which he gets from Nietzsche. And mm-hmm. then, you know, a lot about, I guess, coding, decoding of flows, etc. The syntheses of the unconscious as well, he kind of touches on. So, And specifically, you know, we've gone from the way that Marx shows up in Nietzsche and philosophy, which we covered in um, the second episode, which just dropped last night, right? We, um, When Marx shows up in Nietzsche and philosophy, it's kind of this ambiguous figure. Right. It is this figure of maybe Marx was trying to keep the slippery slope of Sterner, right? You know, egoism from uh, from derailing the dialectic or from the dialectic going as far as that kind of virulent nihilism. Yeah. Um, Which is interesting because he does that gets brought up in one of these texts. I know I have it in my notes. Is that the fucking time? Did I just say? Yeah, I just said the the fucking subtitle for Nick Land's book. I didn't even mean <laughs> yeah. to. Speaking of unconscious. But, you know, Freud also shows up in Nietzschean philosophy in an interesting way, right? Just kind of in passing, though. Maybe similar to, to the way Marx shows up, right? It's, but it's here where the, the Nietzsche-Marx-Freud synthesis or trinity is posited, like, in full force and um you know i think that that what's interesting right is obviously you know anti-oedipus is not the first to attempt the synthesis of marx and freud freudo marxism was was already kind of a thing frankfurt but but nietzsche as the intermediary between the two and obviously in the background there's spinoza and yada yada right you can throw in some others but specifically nietzsche as the quote-unquote ethnologist to synthesize the two or to bring them into a dialogue that seems to be at least more particularly one of the the novel innovations that that Deleuze is trying to point to with the cold open that I just read and Deleuze will always try to do this this is part of his his charity part of his um charitableness I will say where he's like it's not so much Marx and Freud as what psychoanalysis became particularly under Freud later, but, you know, Freudianism, Marxism, what Marxism became under the French Communist Party, right? It's those two that are these great bureaucracies that espouse coding. You've been made ill by the state, you'll be cured by the state, not the same state. You've been made ill by the family, etc. What's the word? What's the Alfhaven Alfhaven translation? Well, Alfhaven is, um, is the verb. Alphabung is is the noun that is okay. That gotcha. It's not sublimation. What's the fucking sublation? I mean, sublation. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's what I was looking for. Like the sublated state, the sublated family, right? Brought into the greater unity with the with its right. opposite or something like that to draw the comparison more distinctly. Let's say there's some good literature even on just on this little essay of Nomad Thought. I was looking at 
some secondary lit and kind of like we mentioned where Deliz's Nietzsche is is obviously a a particular variant of Nietzsche and um not necessarily the most faithful reading of Nietzsche but as we know and we've said this a million times and as most people familiar with Deleuze are you know when he thinks about immaculate conception of philosophers or the buggery right of a kind of creative reading of philosophy where we're not necessarily trying to pin down what a philosopher means or what mm -hmm. they quote unquote actually said although he will say that the creative reading of a philosopher put to new uses should still have a certain faithfulness to it where if the philosopher read his words they you know he he had the kind of there's a playfulness though that's not necessarily just fiction but also not just fact right it's maybe what he might call the anexact although in a different register the main point being you know when he talks about um taking different philosophers from behind he'll mention the two that i remember clearly is like try to take spinoza from behind spinoza resisted because he's the christ of philosophers he's he tried to take nietzsche from behind and nietzsche took him from behind he says something like this if i recall correctly that might even be a kind of way of mentioning his own particular variant of Nietzsche and its lack of fidelity. But, you know, Nietzsche says constantly, like, if you want to follow me, you got to lose me. For those who are often bring against Deleuze, this thing's like, well, Nietzsche's book on Deleuze's book on Nietzsche and philosophy isn't faithful. You know, it's perhaps that criterion isn't shouldn't even be the basis. But in any case, on Nomad thought, you know, there was this interesting article just about how Deleuze's reading is perhaps a little too strong, right, for certain things in Nietzsche's work. I'm not really all that interested in the true Nietzsche, because I think that that's Nietzsche's a slippery bugger. What we do here isn't necessarily about exegesis, and that's exegesis and Dionysus. Anyway, uh, the vicious yeah, so, circle, uh, right? So yeah, unlike Marxism and Freudianism, as Deleuze contends, you know, Nietzsche is sort of sort of interested in decoding. And I think one of the, the things that the article I read about Nomad thought is like, well, Nietzsche is kind of interested in codes, blah, blah, blah. It's like, sure. He gets a little bit of uh, Roman law, a little bit of Hindu law to do the genealogy of morality. So he is like investigating codes. Of course, you, you kind of have to to perform this genealogy, this historical retrospective. Right. right. But I mean, the way that I think of decoding, and you can like say this back to me, obviously in anti-Oedipus is a very specific modality that we can discuss. For me though, in Nietzsche parlance, it's gotta be revaluation of all values, transvaluation, something like this. That it's all established current values sort of should be should be put to the test yeah whether it be like the test of the of the idols right sounding out the idols in the twilight of the idols put to the test to see to test out their their hollowness i mean i think here's where you can really see where deleuze's post-structuralism is this kind of post-structuralist take is generated from to go back to the line you you mentioned, you called out from the cold open, you have been made ill by the state or the family, but you will be cured by the state or the family, just not the exact same state or family. That goes to the modernist projects of not only 
psychoanalysis with Freud, but Marx, Marxism or socialism or whatever label you want to slap on the project. And I guess, you know, ultimately the seeming or at least apparent failure of these attempts at recodification to bring about a better social outcome, a better social arrangement. And so this is where Deleuze highlights Nietzsche's thrust into into transcending codes, into going beyond the need to recode and a, a being that can't be coded, so to speak. The man without predicates, kind of like the model of the schizophrenic process. Yeah. You know, the resistance of being coded and that sort of being the aim of generating a body that doesn't, that cannot be coded, a body without organs with its infinite potentials and et cetera, et cetera. It is interesting, right, in terms of anti-Oedipus, at least when we talk about codes, overcodes, decodes, you know, and Guattari will take this language and run with it, even if Deleuze, you don't, we don't see as much of this in, in A Thousand Plateaus. Guattari even will think about codes on the level of like genetic codes and stuff like this. Like he'll, he'll take this semiotics to an extreme, but at least for Deleuze and for what we've done in anti-Oedipus, it is interesting that by the time we get to capitalism, there is this flourishing of, of decoding. And I think that this is why, you know, when Leotard writes about Nietzsche, he's like, okay, for Nietzsche, culture is what is in decadence, quote unquote, in decadence. And, you know, for Deleuze, he might say it's it's the totality of metaphysics. It's metaphysics as a whole that is nihilistic, not any one particular variant. So I kind of read it similar, but you know, but then Leotard says it's capitalism that is in crisis, which is more of a kind of Marxist way of phrasing yeah. it. It's not necessarily in decadence in the way that culture is. It's almost the crisis of capitalism that is a part of the decadence of culture or the, the decadence in which culture resides or something, because it is not only kind of postponing and delaying culture's decadence by shoring up certain values that would, you know, best be best support the extraction of surplus value, blah, blah, blah. But also, and not only delays and postpones this decadence, but it can also accelerate the downfall of certain uh, values, which, you know, if we become attached to them in a sort of reactionary way, then of course we're going to, uh, you know, call for a kind of pushback, a restoration of, of values rather than their, their revaluation. We've already talked a little bit about that, obviously, but I think it, it's good to reiterate some of this when it comes to codes and decoding. Yeah. I have a interesting maybe example we can briefly talk through to highlight the process maybe i don't really follow sports very much these days but there's been some like conference realignment things going on basically the pac-12 dissolved effectively within the last month and this sort of i think is an example of the way that capitalism decodes the flows because you have kind of like ncaa football has got over 100 years of tradition the pac-12 had been around for like over 100 years if i'm not mistaken, TV money, et cetera, is working. It's kind of like it basically led to 
the Pac-12 getting absorbed by a couple of the other major conferences. So all those historical rivalries, history, regional kind of relationships, identities, rivalries, etc., all of that sort of gets scrambled up and now they're part of a totally, you know, they're kind of removed from that history, removed from all of these things as part of this new arrangement with money, you know, being obviously the driving sort of decoding force of capitalism, etc. This is an example I kind of tried to use talking to my uncle, who's like a, a sports fan a few weeks ago or months ago, just kind of talking about kind of explaining how capitalism kind of works in this regard, the way that it takes these kind of traditions and really maybe not upends them entirely, but displaces history or some of these things. Go to like my own kind of pet interest. You can do a whole like history of wrestling territories and the advent of Vince McMahon Jr. on the scene. Hundred uh, percent, the exact same process. Totally, you're you're right on. It's similar to what you're talking about because it has to do with TV contracts. It has to do with gaining airtime, and then the smaller regional, more locally focused, more like diversity of you know styles of play, et cetera, et cetera, gets all kind of homogenized with the rise of the first to like make it to kind of national airwaves. Vince was able to sort of uh, get a monopoly more or less besides, I mean, it makes sense that WCW under the Turner banner would be one of the few to resist because TBS had always kind of had a, a, a broader reach, which is why, as we said, we haven't said in a while, but why, you know, you grew up a Braves fan, right? Because yeah, right, TBS yeah, exactly. could be broadcast beyond just the Georgia area. Anyway. Yeah. So Got a little bit. Which, of I mean, sports. that that's totally part of that whole coding decoding process, too. You mentioned what's interesting is that capitalism's decoding, its deterritorialization on one plane, right? Yeah, easily leads oh. to reterritorialization on other, which is why there's a. I mean, which is why WWE and its style of res wrestling, its style becomes kind of homogenized obviously for every particular wrestling but there is a kind of style and it's not just in ring it's also the way that the camera captures the action in the ring every like punch or move there's a there's a quick camera switch to kind of like to like perhaps hide the i mean we've already broke the fourth wall so like trying to pretend like every impact needs to be like a camera shift it really becomes jarring for the viewer but it becomes it takes on the style that's that's just rote, if you will, that's homogenized. And it downplays the actual action in the ring for a kind of just vignette of quick cuts. Unsurprisingly brilliant point to bring it up as deterritorialization and reterritorialization, because I think in Nomad Thought, maybe I'm wrong, one of these essays, he talks about the internal and the external, which reminded me back to anti-Oedipus of the internal and external limit, mm, right? Like mm -hmm. this is a good example of the way that the sort of inside of wrestling sort of changes, right? And the outside, there's two sort of different things going on at once. The way that the sort of internal logic of the sport is impacted and the way that the sort of external, like the way that it's uh, maybe consumed would be the yeah. way to describe it.
of course we could go do a whole episode on whether it be sports or, or wrestling in general i did tell you some years ago we have to read uh bart's essay the world of wrestling but we'll get to that down the line in terms of the internal and external i'm not exactly sure we have to look at the essay closely but i do remember one of the i know i've got something one of the images i remember from the essays critical and clinical essay on nietzsche and saint paul lawrence and john patmos is this notion of john patmos drawing on a kind of pagan substratum that the bible normally like ejects or suppresses and how there's this pagan substratum that pierces through the veil of revelation sort of rises up to the foreground in order to um, prepare the way for this eschatological visionary movement incidentally i just wanted to say that i was fascinated with revelation as a kid that's the book that i've read most in the bible really yeah oh yeah because i saw this movie it's called a Th like a thief in the night, I believe, which was okay. basically about the whole premise is like a contemporary. The rapture occurs and the seven years of tribulation that are prophesied, right? Where the seven seals, which gets referenced in the, the John of Patmos essay, right? Those seals are broken, etc., and the you know God's wrath gets poured out on the earth in different guises. It's just interesting that that. My fear that at that point was basically the movie sell was selling like there's going to be this fascistic or authoritarian government that is going to come and it's going to persecute Christians, the believers that are sort of left behind following the rapture. They would be specifically like beheaded. They would be guillotined. As you can imagine, there's all sorts of interesting parallels to like, I feel like this is ironically the way that we're kind of trending in society now is the sort of reverse like the it's not like the the uh atheists that are <laughs> gonna develop this atheistic authoritarian government that will persecute christians it's the christians that are going to persecute the non-believers let's say that's kind of the essence of christofascism though yeah. is to wield power over others and, and specifically bodies as we've seen in the past few years right. don't have to really say much more than that but to wield power over bodies and yet to feign weakness and persecution against right being yeah. being persecuted against right it's it's you know simultaneously strong and weak at the same time because wouldn't it be great so the the christians think there's to be nothing better than to have a, a literally like objective locatable presence of oppression because that would be the sign that one is elected one is chosen the chosen people are are given hard times by by god you can see this in like the history of american literature so much in the 19th century so much of it is um is about this sort of need for external oppression and persecution because it that's the sign that that god is testing us and we are the chosen people and stuff like that and i think that that's probably the irony of of the way that nietzsche's book antichrist ends with like this manifesto this law against christianity how it has to become this this sort of 
ash heap of criminality and right and and what's what the irony is basically that if one were to follow nietzsche and and really like turn christianity into the the curse word that he's trying to make then you you have that objective persecution that i'm talking about then you can really claim to be oppressed and be a victim be a victim of nietzschean anti-morality or some shit just as nietzsche's antichrist ends with a kind of manifesto the same with uh, lawrence's apocalypse it ends with the kind of manifesto not as polemically uh written as nietzsche's but it ends with this kind of manifesto but it's in this language of the individual and the collective which Deleuze brings up a little bit how you know the jesus of john in the gospels is like this you know this individual is a part of this individual soul. All this language about the individual and the collective comes from Lawrence's reading of Revelation or, you know, in the Greek, Apocalypse. Um, D.H. Lawrence of Lady Chatterley fame to uh, just for the huh. audience, because I don't think yeah, I mean, Lawrence that is, earlier. Lawrence is one of those uh, American writers that are not American. He's British. British. Right? Sorry. One of those Anglo <laughs> writers, if I will. If you may, if, if you'll allow it, uh, you know, Deleuze is, is always pointing to Anglo-American literature and Lawrence is one of those that he's been fond of. I, I believe he brings up Lawrence. I know Henry Miller comes up too, but Lawrence, he brings up even in like the first chapter of Anti-Oedipus, I think. But he's one of the he's one of the entourage of Anglo-American writers that um, Deleuze will will look to so it's not surprising that it returns to him in the end but anyway um there's a kind of manifesto at the end of of apocalypse one could even say at the end of Deleuze's essay on Nietzsche and St. Paul Lawrence John Patmos there's even a kind of manifesto too it's interesting because he makes this shift almost in the last like two paragraphs or so to this like Deleuze Guattarian language he almost like he reverts back to that that assemblage, the D&G assemblage, to talk about this kind of renewed logic of connections and starts speaking again in this kind of Lawrencean language of this difference between the soul and the ego. It's very hard to kind of pin down exactly what Deleuze is going for. Maybe we can turn to that and look at it again. I know we jumped kind of to the other essay and if you want we can talk a little bit more about it before going back to nomad thought but it makes sense why you would be interested in revelation as i said and as well because about out, out of fear like this movie that i saw scared out of fear yeah this movie right. that i saw terrified me because i was like i'm a sinner i'm gonna be left behind to be killed by the fascists right i'm gonna be guillotined by the fascists and then, like, starting to think, you know, is it going to hurt if when I get beheaded on, on a guillotine? Does do I would I feel anything? This Cold War style anxiety over the USSR. Definitely, this reference to the sort of right, the Soviet Union is the the atheist one world, I the see. one world sort of government that that's the type of fear that is pushed. In essence, the New World Order conspiracy theory type thing. Yeah, kind of the globalist, but global as in like atheist communism being the... Rather than Jewish? Who knows what the mark of the beast, etc. would sort of go with. But what I do think is interesting in regard to the mark of the beast and even the like Book of Life, the 144,000 that are supposed to be saved, right? It's recorded in a book 
the mark of the beast, you know, it's on what the forehead or the wrist, it's the physical inscription. All of that is really interesting in dialogue with Antietipus and the system of cruelty, marking, etc. Marking on the body. Yeah. And the transition from that to like the external form of memory in the book, which really allows people to it allows debts to persist in a different way than like in the system of cruelty right you're marked your debt to the tribe there's a sort of expiration date based on your life right but now that we have recording that exists outside of the body that can be referenced that can persist throughout history once like my father dies right i'm responsible for paying off any debts that he incurred during his lifetime have to be repaid still that debt is owed so even death we can't even escape debt through our actual debt like the debt persists on to the to the next generation and i think that's a really really interesting that's a really interesting point it's interesting i mean you talked you said a little bit a while ago about the uh in relation to this movie right it's the christians who are persecuted and as i kind of said that's that's what they've always wanted because so much of the of the of the popular force of the spread of christianity in the in the first centuries the common era whatever you want to call it in rome is the strength in which they can draw upon the literal again literal objective persecution by by rome by right. emperors yeah. like domitian nero i'd have to look and see if I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I'm pretty sure Nero. I thought Domitian was like way later in that. No, Domitian was one of the the main ones. But obviously, things take a turn when, as the Roman Empire is is sort of internally crumbling from for many reasons, which is a, of a historical nature. You know, there is a, a you know seizing upon it to become the state religion. There is this interesting transformation of Christianity from this like popular minoritarian religion that forsakes sort of worldly empires to become the empire of religion's own empire. And, and Deleuze talks about this a little bit, and I'm sure Lawrence does too in, uh, in the apocalypse, right? That like, there's this sense in which this gospel of love, which is why the book, the essay starts, John, of the gospels and john of patmos can't be the same man they're not the same type of man going back to this language of typology that we saw in nietzsche and philosophy right there's a sense in which the gospel of love turns into this this virulence where it wants to insinuate itself within all the pores of power so rendering under caesar is is rendering caesar unto oneself into becoming taking on the the garb of caesar which is why that image of the the lamb in blood it's not the lamb's blood right it is this vicious lamb that's slaughtering millions that's kind of what i was thinking about when you were saying as opposed to the fantasy of christianity which wants to see itself as as oppressed these days it's still that that blood of the lamb but not its own blood I think in any case, you know, one thing that you can see sort of relative to the, to connecting these two is the way in which Revelation as the sort of as sealing off the New Testament, right, as giving it 
sort of one last look, it is interesting that Deleuze describes this as, if you will, the Judaic Messiah or the or the Judaic vision of being chosen, the chosen people is always this like deferred destiny. And Deleuze puts it in an interesting way that the deferral becomes postferred because it's after death, after not only one's own death or it's the death of everything, the death of the cosmos, right? It's the death of existence. No and more so, becomings, right? At the end of so, becoming. Yeah, so, and so it's it's interesting, right? He's talking about how, you know, in the in the Greek and Roman conceptions of uh whether it be their mythos, their um their sort of mythological investigations of the world, there's so much interest. And he's not just talking about mythology, he's also thinking about um in its thought, like the Greek and Romans, the ancient world is interested in beginnings. But Revelation, Apocalypse, is filling out the dotted line between the beginning and, and the end. What has to kind of occupy the available space and time of creation. And I think in that sense, obviously, you know, there's a, I mean, what? I know this was discussed when one of the things that I remember just dis being discussed when Trump was president and like moving the capital of Israel to Jerusalem, right? Some of this talk about the temple being rebuilt, you got to, you got to like, there's this talk about the, the crazy fundamentalist evangelists needing to fulfill the signs of, of right. the end yeah. times. Exactly. Yeah. Sort of forcing it, <laughs> if you will. and. You know, obviously, throughout all the pagan symbolism in Revelation, specifically, and you know, one that Deleuze points out is like the red dragon persecuting the, the sort of mother figure of 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 the Messiah, and its peoples. One of the signs too is this objective, external, validatable uh, oppression of believers or whatnot, right? One can imagine then that the decoding of, we, you mentioned the schizophrenic process, but we can also think about the decoding that capitalism unleashes. One would think that that decoding would be the proper antagonist of Christianity. And there are obviously strains of Christianity that are anti-capitalist, that are revolutionary, and that's right. not to deny it. But perhaps they don't get the they don't raise as much noise as those variants of Christianity, whether we look at, you know, the Protestant ethic or whatnot. I'm just talking about contemporary society. I'm not even thinking theoretically that align itself with the moneylenders in the temple. And in the hierarchy case, of the priests, in a sense. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, yeah. Not in the but sense in case, of guess, like the ex, like the Sanhedrin, like literally, but in a kind of individualized priestliness, which I suppose would be like bad conscience. Yeah. I mean, I think so. Bad conscience and resentment in terms of anti-Oedipus, I think about it as, um, you know, it's the don't become enamored with power in Christian speak, you know, take the plank out of your own eye before looking at the speck in your brother's eye. There's a kind of like kill the fascist, the cop in your own yeah. head. That's the kind of warning against bad conscience and resentment, like 
teaming up together because it's the cop in our head that wants to police others, police others, their bodies, their values. And writ large, it becomes this discourse about the degeneration of societies. As Leodore likes to likes to talk about, right, um, even, even if there's ways in which Nietzsche kind of falls into this metaphorical language sometimes. But for Leotard, he wants to strictly distinguish the decadence of culture, which is tied to revaluation, decoding, and something like degeneration, which is a biological metaphor. Degeneration would be, um, it takes on eugenicist tones. That's the fallacy, but also the strength of that metaphor for reactionary types. As though it were like inborn, essentialized, heritable, or even like a virus that can be like transferred. Yeah, like the trans panic. That's why even allowing them to exist or be allowed to be out of the closet in public view that's already grooming because it's a mind virus or some shit yeah, right yeah precisely yeah because it gives credence to the fact that other values other ways of living are possible that becomes a threat it shows that human nature is artificial in a in a big big way i think like you said there's no this kind of essentialist fundamentalist essentialism yeah, it, it flies in the face of the reality that we're supposed to bear as as asses, right? We're supposed to have the unquestioning yes of it is what it is. This gets back to a little it's bit. It's God's just, will. Yeah, it's God's will. God's will. Right. It gets a little bit back to this question about the nihilist negation of negation versus the the destructive negation involved with affirmation, which we talked about a little bit. We could go back to this question or this thing that I brought up about the interior and exterior limits. Here's a quote. It is characteristic of philosophical writing that relations with an exterior are always mediated and dissolved by an interiority. However, Nietzsche grounds his thought on an immediate relation with the outside, the exterior. To me, that was interesting in the context of the way that capitalism displaces its interior and exterior limits. Obviously, I think the inspiration is more or less there. I mean, this is interesting, right? Because he's talking about the aphorism, which is something he didn't really discuss in, in Nietzschean philosophy. Uh, well, not in the way that he does here, yeah. right? I mean, I think for, for Deleuze, and he even quotes Nietzsche, he's like, look, just because you've read an aphorism doesn't mean you've un kind of unpacked its meaning. And I think that for, for Deleuze, you know, he thinks that it's in the aphorisms that we kind of get keys of unlocking some of the intricacies of Zarathustra. But that's a whole nother thing. And, and I think that for Deleuze, at this, by this point, he has uh, moved away from interpretation as the method of reading Nietzsche to this talk about the outside that you bring up, right? So. Yeah. He says, we say that such texts, and he's talking about genealogy of morals, he's talking about aphorisms, he's talking about Kafka's work. He says, we say that such texts are infused with a movement that comes from the outside, does not begin within the page of the book, nor within the preceding pages, does not stay within the frame of the book, 
and is totally different from the imaginary movement of representation or from the abstract movement of concepts as they usually take place through words and in the mind of the reader. Something jumps out of the book, comes in contact with a pure outside. That, I think, is the right to misinterpretation for the entire works of Nietzsche. I like that. That's kind of, uh, you know, absolving himself, but also absolving this endless quest, I think, that would be the proper hermeneutics exegesis of Nietzsche. An aphorism is a play of forces, a state of forces, each of which is always outside the others. An aphorism means nothing, signifies nothing, and has no more a signifier than a signified element. These would imply restoring the interiority of a text. And I could go on, but you brought up earlier, I think probably in anticipation of this, this notion of Deleuze's post-structuralism. And I do think that it's here that that comes out clearly, at least for me, is this notion of this relation to the outside, where we're no longer within even like something like logic of sense, like a serialism, like a series. And, uh, you know, obviously, at some point, we have to look at Deleuze's, uh, how do we recognize structuralism to get into this more, but, and obviously, logic of sense, but, you know, we're, we're no longer worried about linking up aphorisms in the play of meaning, you know, that there's always this displaced meaning jumping from one impossible location to another, which he'll talk about. Again, I'm just kind of alluding to some some of his other work. But but yeah, we're not looking internally, flipping back and forth to try to like connect the dots. Um, I think when he's saying it's related to the outside, I think this goes back to his kind of very Proustian way of thinking about, you know, it's not about what a book means, right? It's what the use to which books are made. And he even talks about three different kinds of books, right? At the start, there's this book that's, uh, well, how does he say it? There's, um, as for the main encoding instruments, is this what he's, is this where it is? As, the, as for the main encoding instruments, we know what they are. Societies do not differ very much, not very, there are not very many ways of encoding available to them. We know of at least three, the law, the contract, and the institution. For example, they can easily be revealed in the relationships that men maintain or have maintained with books. There are books which set forth the law, where the relationship between reader and book passes through the law. More specifically, in fact, there are they are called codes or sacred books. And then there's another kind of book that depends upon the contract, the bourgeois contractual relationship and underlies lay literature and sales profits. I buy you, you afford me something to read. I buy you. I think I give you money. A contractual relationship taking everyone in, author, publisher, reader. And finally, there's a third kind of book, the political book, preferably revolutionary, offered as a book of institutions, be they present or future. All sorts of mixtures come about, contractual or institutional books are treated as sacred texts, etc. And then taken all together, different example, that of madness. The attempt to encode madness has taken all three different forms. And here we can think about, obviously, Foucault's History of Madness, obviously Deleuze would be familiar with that, but there's the asylum, there's Freud's contractual relationship, there's the institution. And I think that, you know, obviously bringing in literature, bringing in, bringing in madness, bringing in these different types and the way that this just goes back to kind of what we said about capitalism and, and schizophrenia and the way that they decode, but also there's a way in which schizophrenia can be turned into 
an entity, the schizophrenic, when it becomes institutionalized, when the process is, is blocked part way. And I think the last thing I would say here in, in A Thousand Plateaus and the Rhizome Plateau, they're still looking for a different type of book, a book that would not be the tree book, the, the root book, but the sort of this rhizomatic book, which I think the key word there for them, rhizome is multiplicity. It's what he may have called in Eastern philosophy, pluralism, essentially pluralistic. It's sort of seeking this outside. It's seeking to deploy its forces and not link signifiers together. To me, it sounded like he was kind of describing the aphorisms in this kind of having this sort of asignification or this asignifying element to them that he found powerful. I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think so. I think ultimately in the end, and I think this is a one way of reading what Nietzsche says. I think Deleuze quotes him saying like, just because you've read an, an aphorism doesn't mean you've started to like interpret it. And I think that that's the thing though. Interpretation isn't necessarily, again, seeking a, a signifier as the decoder ring. I think that you're right, that there is something in that. Yeah, yeah, because he describes it as an intensive relation, which I really, I don't know what we could read to this intensive, extensive intention, extension thing is something that I've not, I've struggled to grasp for like forever at this point. I don't well, know if there's anything I, I would we could say, read that would go to that yeah. or like we could work on because I, I think I that is kind of interesting. That's not as important, the extensity here at least, right? I, th I see it almost reading intensity in a Nietzschean sense where it is a, a vivifier. It is an enhancer of life, thought, feeling rather than a means of poisoning it and destroying it. So I, I see it in the sense in which we talked about active forces, which compose with, with my body, with what I can do and increase my power. So a part of the, the affirmative quality of the will to power in that sense. What's kind of interesting, this is a little bit bad shit. I don't know if you'll be willing to take this, uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just brush it out. And that would be, I almost feel like Twitter is kind of this pluralistic sort of book that allows for these sort of connections to be made. And there's kind of an aphorist. Tweets are sort of aphoristic by nature, just in their truncated amount of space that you have to communicate. Well, I think the and way And they're not, not necessarily tied to seriality at least yeah. not in a like narrative or typical fashion there is a more rhizomatic element to just the way that just the internet functions and allows for connections to be made across time and space like our connection for example as a positive yeah i think the way that you post whatever is rhizomatic is aphoristic and just because there are tweets that fall into another character, a characteristic of being purely denotative, if you will, that possibility is not the only one. And you have here, I don't know, did, is this Deleuze here that your note don't barter away intensity for representation? Is that yeah. Deleuze? Yeah. I had forgotten that line. That's good. Because again, I think that that goes to your um, yeah, yeah, question totally. about intensity and aphorism as intensive rather than representational. And so, yeah, in, in that, and I think that applies to what you just said about tweets, about posts now, I guess. We can't even call them tweets. Yeah. <laughs> it's been take. Look what they took from us. Exactly. Right. Um, they decoded my damn tweets. They decoded my flows. Yeah. Um, 
I think one thing that's interesting here is that there's this great anecdote. I would have to search the author who writes about this, but there's this anecdote and we could speak about madness again, right? Of this monk who was overwhelmed. I may have told you the story, but who was overwhelmed by these visions of these mandalas, right? These maybe it's also pronounced mandalas, right? These, yeah, these, mandalas, these yeah. crazy, intricate uh, visions. Geometric visions, yeah. These Baroque geometrical visions that he couldn't shake and it would get to the point of catatonia and paralysis. And then one day, I'm not sure if he was, he kind of almost like self-therapeutically decided to start to, to draw them because they were just, they, they were taking up his life. And it was in the act of drawing them, of inscribing them that he was able to gain some semblance of power back over himself. And so it is kind of this interesting opposition between intensity and representation this delirium in order to be mastered had to be sort of written down. And there's interesting oh, relations that we know from the occult, like this, whether it's superstition or not, well, it's all, I guess, perhaps at least based well, in fantasy. I'm sigil not magic, yeah. Fictional, but like learning a demon's name and, and saying it gives us power over it, right? There's a way of representing the demonic force through language an inscription that sort of gives a power you can multiply the examples the entities i told you what was it uh, goetic goetia oh yeah that's for summoning though right yeah i can't i don't remember but again i suppose but there are like there's a chart all the different sigils for all calling all the right multitude of demons which are referred to as goetic or goetia there's something similar and yeah, because I guess a sigil has a, a signifying intensity to it, right? You charge the sigil with some type of desire, let's say, like an intensive desire. Or a wish, something like that, right? right? Yeah, yeah, precisely. That's kind of close to what Guattari is thinking of when he thinks, yeah. of, the di when he thinks of the diagrammatic. diagrammatic. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit with uh, Genosco too. Yeah, right. So, I mean, I think that there are basic diagrams we can think of that are mostly just kind of almost you can think of like a, an excel spreadsheet of linguistic signifiers that are ordered in a certain way and i think guattari has something a little bit more dynamic when he's talking about the diagrammatic that textual would be something machines. i said textual machines i mean <laughs> is that laurel or am i that's the name of one of laurel's something some machines textuals or whatever the fuck yeah, textual machines, which is about connecting the libido of writing with the will to power and eternal return of the same. I mean, that would be fucking a, a, a sigil, right? Just like, pretty much the process I just described. Yeah, I Minus think so. that last part. To some well, extent. I mean, of course, we're riffing. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the way that, the way that you know, Laurel thinks of it as a kind of, you know, if you if you had two particles that you slam together in a super collider, it would be like Deleuze and Derrida. So you take deconstruction and you take desiring machines, libidinality, and, and you kind of concoct a, a kind of libidinal deconstructive apparatus. That's hot. I like that. I think that that's one way of understanding. I mean, I think that that you can see the kind of the seeds of 
the the earliest formulation of what non-philosophy does when it takes a text and reworks it according to certain axioms and rewrites it and inscribes within it certain like unilateralizing functions i think he's thinking of take deconstruction and turn it into this machine mm-hmm. right so this is the textual machine right so you're you're you are potentially able to sort of rework the basic material of philosophical writing and sort of take it to a certain limit that it could never that it can never reach based upon its own limited type of worldview for example the he calls it the unity of contraries but it's a kind of it's kind of like uh, how euclidean geometry was had a limited worldview because it thought of parallel lines as not never touching in infinity with a curved universe lifting that postulate we're able to think in a non-euclidean way and i think he's trying to like he's got the seeds of that idea in um a kind of libidinal deconstruction and sounds crazy as that seems i mean i do think that that's it sounds amazing what if deconstruction were a desiring machine that you could take its recursivity and link it to the will to power and in the eternal return that's obviously very vague and how right, it works yeah. is, you know, whatever. It's a crazy fucking text, but yeah. Is that translated? And is the translation any good? It is not translated. I translated the introduction, which is probably decent. It's just a bootleg on speculative heresy. I know Jeremy Smith has translated parts of it, I think, scattered throughout. I'm not exactly sure. I'd have to look at his site. There's a great footnote he has about saying he's interested in the Delidad Deruz synthesis, right? There's this kind yeah. of lalation. Again, as I said, he's kind of like smashing their names together and scrambling their, their codes. Right, decoding, um, yeah, interesting. Deterritorializing in a, what is it, concomitant? Is that a word? Concomitant? Concomitant, yeah. Concomitant, yeah, the word Concomitantly. That I, one of his first, his I think it's his first published essay, at least from the bibliography that I have of him, is also, I've also translated it. It's about an active linguistics. I brought that up, I think, last time when I read the his little Nietzsche quote, like, learning the utility of a thing doesn't tell us anything about its origin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. With regard to values just in particular, yeah, yeah. Right, and so, like, for... For Laruel, this notion of an act of linguistics that kind of like links a will to power to speaking is <laughs> like, what the fuck? Okay, cool. I mean, speechifying, yeah. And obviously, he's playing off of like Heidegger's uh, Die Sprache Sprecht, right? Speech speaks. Gotcha. The good segue point would be you mentioned the Deru's Delita. So, what do you make of this discussion of proper names? Well, it does go back to Anti-Oedipus a little bit. One of the last letters that Nietzsche wrote, I think, to his friend Overbeck. I looked this letter up the other day. Every name in, in history is I, which one could take, I think, in his delirium, one should take it the way that Deleuze Guattari do, right, as 
this is the the subject that that it's alongside the the machines right this is the the subject who is sort of created out of the synthesis of consumption and exists alongside the parts alongside the machines and for Deleuze and Guattari it's sort of an arc that's sweeping a circle of points rather than a, a stationary identity that's locked in place how reassuring that would be for someone undergoing the throes of delirium to be able to point to Dionysus Christ out in the world that's me that is part of the you know illegitimate synthesis right when we point back and we say oh that's me right um so that's what I wanted so that's that's me over there um in the corner right would, that would be reassuring but you know I suppose there's a on the flip side, diametrically opposed to what I just said, there's, um, but in conjunction with it too, kind of like the obverse would be the fact that every name in history says I, as though I, in the linguistic sense of shifters, is continuously shifting through a kind of sea of values and ideological notions and, and perspectives, right? I as an other, as Rambo says, kind of way i is always another other 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 it's never like it's always shifting i think it's more interesting obviously to think of it as as the delirium point right where nietzsche's sense of self is constantly transmutating that's where to get to your question that's what this notion of the person the proper name is for Deleuze and Guattari, it's, it's intensive. And when they talk about the proper name, they'll bring this back up in A Thousand Plateaus. When they talk about the proper name, they want to assign it. I think they do in Anti-Oedipus. They'll assign it to effects, right? They'll, and they'll talk about how even like in science, science specifically uses this, where we measure things in Kelvin. We think of little... Everything has a name like Huygens or fucking... Heisenberg's indeterminate. Heisenberg, yeah. Uncertainty I mean, principle. even um, even Stephen Hawking, I think there's like the Hawking effect or something like that too. So, which is interesting because to me that contradicts this notion of like the kind of the asignification or like that to me, like proper names gesture something that is a code. To me, it implies a coding. That's fair, but that's a function of science, which is trying to create a plane of reference. It's different than then philosophy, even though philosophy can use proper names too, right? But remember, science is trying to kind of create this stable plane, consistent plane out of yeah. chaos in order right. to... Just broadly speaking, I don't think even outside of science, <coughs> like just the notion of proper names. Well, like, for example, degrees in Kelvin, Kelvin as a name doesn't right. signify anything. It's not signifying anything. It's really just a, a placeholder for... I mean, if you think about each degree in Kelvin is an intensive degree, there's no... Right, okay, yeah. Now that makes sense. So in that literal sense that you brought up earlier about intensity versus the extensive, mm -hmm. you know, one could say like the name Nietzsche or Dionysus Christ, is that a signifier? I mean, if it is, that's kind of to, to deaden it. Obviously, you can, there can be a placeholder where we can say denotatively Nietzsche was the author of XYZ, even if we can play with that and deconstruct it, because what is what is an author, the death of the author, or are we really the author of 
of thoughts, as Nietzsche might say, right? In in the sense of ego, is it not a thought that seizes me? Blah blah right. blah. Yeah, thoughts Thought fall into when your head. Wants. Yeah, but where do they could, go we, when they fall out? I mean, we could speak denotatively in this way. Your name is Cooper. My name is Taylor. But then, like, we take it intensively. We've already talked about this a little bit. Cooper is the generic name for a mode of being, a mode of acting, and 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 creating. Just as a tailor is similar to that, right? It's it's the activity of of labor genericized, and so I, I do think it is an antiepis. And around this part, when they talk about proper names as these intensive effects, they're also looking forward to the place where incest is that shallow slandered stream that's that threshold that can't be occupied it's only with oedipus and with the illegitimate syntheses that we can like make names stick to people to global persons otherwise in the intensive state names slide off like wet stamps as they say you can't have the name and the person it's almost like you can't have the the position and the and the speed accelerate of, yeah of the electron the interesting intervention with sterner relative to the eye would be a really interesting discussion but i mean you'd have to read the unique in its property to really be able to dialogue with that but i think there's something kind of interesting especially given the way that Deleuze kind of critiques sterner's nihilism relative to the ego or the eye I think with the proper name, one of the first proper names we we see in um, Anti-Oedipus is, uh, I believe, Schraber. I'd have to look. Maybe Judge Schraber to... has sunbeams out his ass. I think it's um, Schraber. And what what a better way of exemplifying this this kind of... Yeah, the intensive relation. I mean, we could talk about the Schraber effect in many ways, what, what it could designate could designate becoming woman could designate just the intensive states of delirium but if we radically isolate schraber as the 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 name of a historical personage and sort of cut out all of the effective and intensive associations not just in the anti-oedipus but outside in the history of psychotherapy it loses its effect. It becomes merely representationalized. And I think that that's similar to what we were talking about with the diagram or with the engram, we could even say, right? The sigil, I think is the word you used, right? right. Yeah, yeah. There is a sense in perhaps that names like that are, are these, these sigils. This is where logic of sense becomes interesting, right? Because like to name a name or to say the sense of a name, we need another name. And there's this like sort of infinite regress for which Deleuze says the only name that can say its own sense is nonsense. And that's where the paradoxes become interesting, right? Are proper names nonsensical? Well, maybe in Deleuze's strict sense, they could be. But in the other sense, obviously Schraber, the Schraber effect, I mean, it doesn't, it's not the same as, um, what what's the word he has he has some some different nonsense words but it's not the same kind of nonsense as i think it's like blurdy and scandapos these words he takes from stoicism these like nonsense words which we can almost like relate to like the zen koan right like a the master instead of like teaching 
a lesson through words, just like bops you on the head with the with the staff. Perhaps in that sense, I mean, to go with your notes, one cannot help but laugh when codes are confounded. I mean, yeah, that's that's the thing. Like, you know, I don't necessarily think um, the proper name in their theory is is an encoding in that sense. Not in the strict sense. It's not necessarily a decoding either, but it is a we can think of it as a function or, um, you know, a part of the, the movement. I mean, in philosophical terms, it could be a part of the creation of concepts. I did like this quote. Intensity can be experienced then only in connection with its mobile inscription in a body and under the shifting exterior of a proper name. And therefore the proper name is always a mask, a mask that masks its agent. We've actually been talking about this, right, <laughs> in a in a very roundabout way, you know. And and Deleuze will talk about masks and difference repetition. He'll talk about the play of difference and repetition, which, in a certain sense, are distinct, yet only like formally or something, right? But that he'll talk about repetition as there is bare repetition, which is to be opposed to clothed, or we could call it masked repetition. And it's mass repetition where repetition is, is allowed to flourish in itself, rather than to be tied back to a kind of empty sense of repeating. It's not separated from what it can do, right? It's, he gives the example of Bastille Day. Bastille Day is not um, repeating it's not the repetition of the year before or last Bastille Day. It's taking the storming of the Bastille as an event to the nth power. I think that that's where, how we should understand the masking. There's no, like beneath, beneath the, the, the mask, it's not like the, the truth or something is finally apparent. And before we end, we should definitely give you the chance to talk about Dune. So you want to <laughs> read that quote you have here? Deleuze in obviously Nomad Thought. Obviously, he's going to talk about the nomadic war machine in particular. So I'll just read this quote. The nomad and his war machine opposed the despot with his administrative machine, an extrinsic nomadic unit as opposed to an intrinsic despotic unit. The despot's purpose will be to integrate to internalize the nomadic war machine, while that of the nomad will be to invent an administration for the newly conquered empire. They ceaselessly oppose one another to the point where they become confused with one another. So, we talked about it a little bit, but it's been a while. You know, this notion of an intrinsic, sorry, the extrinsic unit versus the intrinsic unit, you know, they'll talk about it as the, the numbered number and the numbering number. They don't really get super clear about this, although we can obviously think about it as intensive versus extensive. But one of the things that's interesting, right, is um, one of the first things we hear about Arrakis is, and maybe one of the reasons why uh, Duncan Idaho goes out there, not only to like make connections and insinuate himself, but there is this notion of counting how many Fremen there are, right? Yeah. Am I wrong? Or I'm just No, you're totally right. The bet is that 
they're underreported as far as the Imperium is concerned. And there's a vast, you know, political, there's this war machine out there. That's our hypothesis. If we can capture this war machine and integrate it, then we have a chance at bringing down the empire. We have a chance of escaping this trap that's been laid. The trap that's been laid for, uh, for Leto? For Duke Leto, yeah. And the Atreides, basically, yeah. Right. Because they're set to be wiped out. Paul appropriates the Fremen war machine, becomes the emperor. The Fremen become, this doesn't get brought up in the first Dune book, but in Dune Messiah, we have the Kizarat, which is this sort of priestly theocratic government and the ensuing jihad that swept across the galaxy to basically against the unbelievers, against those that didn't believe in Muad'Dib as the god, the messiah. Which, as we find out, Muad'Dib himself would fall under that category at a certain point. In Children of Dune, there's all of this talk about what's been lost for the Fremen. Like, they mourn their their integration into this, like, machinery of government and sort of want to go back to the old ways. They mourn the the extrinsic nature of their their war machine, their former war machine, right? Similar to the way that, I don't know if you saw this, but there's been a few times where somebody's posted this and it's like the Taliban, now that they run Afghanistan, they like yearn for the days of, of the battle with like the US because now they're kind of caught up in this bureaucracy. So it's it's very similar. They've been overcoded or whatever. It goes to right. coding or, or something. It's similar to what I was mentioning about um, sort of ancient Christianity. There's a sense in which there's a vagabond, quasi-nomadic nature to its populist spirit, and then it becomes appropriated by the empire in its dying days, only to outlive it and develop the, the Holy Roman Empire with its whole, I mean, you could say European history is kind of it's infused with the destiny of Christianity. Which I think is really more so the destiny of the Roman Empire. No, that's true. I mean, it is. Rome gives Christianity the grounds a possibility to become what it becomes, if that makes sense. Rome's reach, its power, its influence on the world, like that's what allows Christianity to persist as a practice into the future is the outsized legacy of the Roman Empire on European civilization and consequently our own. This quote is really good. And then I've got a following a follow-up quote from Dune Messiah. It is common knowledge that nomads fare miserably under our, our kinds of regime. We will go to any links in order to settle them. That's now, the Deleuze that? quote. That's a Deleuze quote. Yeah. This is from Dune Messiah. The plotting, self-important language of government enraged him. It had seduced the Fremen. It had seduced everyone. A man, a great man, was dying out there, but language plotted on and on and on. What had happened, he wondered, to all the clean meanings that had screened out nonsense, somewhere in some lost ware which the Imperium had created, they'd been walled off, sealed against chance rediscovery. His mind quested for solutions, mentat fashion. Patterns of knowledge glistened there. How interestingly that fit. I didn't even notice how well that fit 
entirely because of this discussion he makes about language plotting on. Well, you should read this last quote too. Yeah, so this is Paul speaking in Dune Messiah about his own relationship to government. Long ago, he thought of himself as an inventor of government, but the invention had fallen into old patterns. It was like some hideous contrivance with plastic memory. Shape it any way you wanted, but relax for a moment and it snapped into ancient forms. Forces at work beyond his reach and human breasts eluded and defied him. Something defying codification, but this goes to the beginning of the conversation when we're talking about this search for something that rejects codification period and is not merely a recodification, right? That's the the struggle we see that goes to this break between modernism and postmodernism or structuralism and post-structuralism is the belief in a in a rational coding system that can overcome these what are they stalemates the stalemates of, of the old patterns maybe we should read uh one last quote uh, i can read the last paragraph of the nomad thought and then we can wrap up if you'd like philosophic discourse was born out of imperial unity through many transformations these same transformations would take us from imperial formations to the greek city even in the greek city philosophic discourse remains in an essential relationship with the despot or the shadow of the despot, with imperialism and with the administration of persons and things. Philosophic discourse has always been in an essential relationship with the laws, institutions, and contracts which constitute the problem of the sovereign, which traverse sedentary history from despotic formations to democracies. The signifier is really the last incarnation of the despot. Thus, if Nietzsche does not belong to philosophy, it is perhaps because he is the first to conceive of another type of discourse as counter-philosophy. That is to say, a discourse which is fundamentally nomad, whose statements would not be produced by a rational administrative machine, by philosophers as bureaucrats of pure reason, but by a wandering war machine. It's perhaps in this sense that Nietzsche announces that with him, new politics begin, what Klosowski calls the plot against his own class. We know only too well that in our regimes, nomads are unhappy. We are driven to stabilize them, and they find living difficult. Nietzsche lived like one of those nomads reduced to a shadow of themselves going from boarding house to boarding house. However, the nomad is not necessarily someone who moves. These are state, there are stationary voyages, voyages in intensity, and even historically nomads are not those who move as migrants would. They are in fact the ones who do not move and who begin to nomadize in order to stay in the same place while escaping the codes. We clearly know that the revolutionary problem today is that of finding a unity of localized struggle without falling back into the despotic and bureaucratic organization of the party or the state. A war machine which would not reconstitute a state, a nomadic unity in relation with the outside, which would not reinstate the internal despotic unity. There perhaps is the greatest depth of Nietzsche, the measure of his rupture with philosophy, as it appears in the aphorism, to have made thought a war machine, a nomadic power. And even if the voyage is immobile, even if it is undertaken without moving, imperceptibly, unexpectedly, subterraneanly, we must ask, who are our nomads today? Who are truly our Nietzscheans? And I mentioned this was uh, this was given at the Royaumont conference, that second one in 73, but it was published in a volume called Nietzsche aujourd'hui, which is Nietzsche today, right? So like he is kind of trying to capture that call for papers or whatever the fuck right he's he's trying to capture that question 
which is why the first translation of this essay in the new Nietzsche, which is a nice collection of essays we can find on LibGen, doesn't start and end like this and doesn't have the little discussion added on. But the first paragraph that seems to be modified for the Nietzsche-Odrzewi volume, he kind of has this introductory chapter about who are the Nietzscheans today? Perhaps it's perhaps it's really for the the next generation, the young generation, right? Like certain point you're too old for for being a Nietzschean or some shit. <laughs> and he mentioned and he mentions um he mentions a guy who kind of wrote a little manifesto about uh I tweeted about it right to live is not to survive or living is not surviving and he uh, I think right before or right after the manifesto I can't remember in '68 you know he was injured by a grenade at one of these like demonstrations, which is why I think the subtitle of living is not surviving is like interrupted by a grenade or some shit. Richard Deschay, living is not just surviving just before being hit by a grenade during a demonstration. Perhaps it is possible to ride on Nietzsche and then produce Nietzschean utterances during an experience. And he calls for a certain right to misinterpretation of Nietzsche, which I think he's not necessarily, um, he even mentions, does he mention a no man thought where he's like, it's not really a problem of the fascist interpretation of Nietzsche because the real work being done on Nietzsche is not about what he actually said. It's not about like exegesis. I don't know if that was in this essay or somewhere else, but. No, I remember that section. I don't know if he said exactly all of that, but there's something definitely he brings up this. He kind of dismisses it. I mean, I, I think that it's still something to be taken seriously. And I, I don't think he was dismissing the seriousness of it, but I think he was kind of saying like, look, it's no longer just about interpreting Nietzsche's signifiers. And he says something very much like Laura Well will say, Laura Well's book, Nietzsche Contra Heidegger, I believe was published in 77. So a few years later, you know, where he's like, look, Nietzsche embraces fascism the better to strangle it there's this interesting way in which he's like nietzsche is a machine this political machine and so trying to interpret nietzsche as merely fascist or merely revolutionaries is always going to miss the point when there is this kind of duplicity whereby the revolutionary aspect of the machine is kind of summoned to undermine and overcome the fascist aspect. And of course, this is why Heidegger is the main target, right? Not just because of his involvement with the um, with the Nazi party, but the fact that Heidegger's tome on Nietzsche, which I think in English is like probably close to like seven, 800 pages, was this like dominant interpretation. And why one of the first questions Deleuze gets is about like, aren't you dismissing or downplaying Heidegger's, you know, the most important reading of, of Nietzsche. And, and Deleuze is like, oh, I, you sense my antipathy towards Heideggerianism. Like, and that's great. <laughs> like that, yeah, that's, yeah. Anyway, anything else? I mean, I know we, we, we kind of smudged in the, in the middle of, of our conversation, um, the, uh, the talk about the, the Lawrence episode or the Lawrence essay which I think kind of, we tied it in nicely. It tied the room together. Uh, I just don't <laughs> know if there's anything else we, we might want to say. It's a long quote, but I thought it was a banger. So maybe I'll read this and then we can wrap up on this. 
the collective problem then is to institute, find, or recover a maximum of connections. For connections and disjunctions are nothing other than the physics of relations, the cosmos. Even disjunction is physical, like two banks that permit the passage of flows or their alteration. But we, we live at the very most in a logic of relations. Lawrence and Russell did not like each other at all. We turn disjunction into an either-or. We turn connection into a relation of cause and effect or a principle of consequence. We abstract a reflection from the physical world of flows, a bloodless double made up of subjects, objects, predicates, and logical relations. In this way, we extract the system of judgment. It is nor a question of opposing society and nature, the artificial and the natural. Artifices matter little. But when a physical relation is translated into logical relations, a symbol into images flows into segments, exchanged, cut up into subjects and objects, each for the other, we have to say that the world is dead and that the collective soul is in turn enclosed in an ego, whether that of the people or a despot. These are the false connections that Lawrence opposed to physics. According to Lawrence's critique, money like love must be reproached not for being a flow, but for being a false connection that mints subjects and objects. When gold is turned into loose change, there is no return to nature, but only a political problem of the collective soul, the connections of which a society is capable. The flows it supports, invents, leaves alone, or does away with. Pure and simple sexuality. Yes, if what one means is by that is the individual and social physics of relations as opposed to asexual logic. <laughs> nice. This essay kind of ends with a kind of manifesto that he kind of reverts to this Deleuze Guattarian anti-Oedipal speak about connections. It's kind of taking a Lorenzian tinge to this logic of, of or physics of relations. This part about money, like love, must be reproached for not being a flow, but for being a false connection that mints subjects and objects. What's the thing? Okay, so the decoded flows. I forget the relation in Antiedipus between the decoded flows and money. Is it money is kind of what enables the decoding of the flows? Is am I right? I well, feel like that's. I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's enabling. It is like part and parcel of it, right? And this is why they, they give examples of like introducing money into these sort of markets, specifically through colonialism, that functioned irrespective of money as the great equalizer. That's what disrupts the whole economy. Interesting. So right? would, that even, would that even go back to my, our example from the sports world with regard to wrestling and um, college football, right? There's a time whenever college football is not this for-profit industry per se, like the way that at least, right? I mean, obviously you had ticket sales, so there's a type of exchange and revenue there, but that gets, it's not until the development of mass communication technologies, TV, broadcasting, satellite, etc., that it really ramps up and money begins to displace the old system of 
whenever football started out, it was like this sort of gentleman's game almost. Right, right, right. It within was the I- yeah, yeah, within the Ivy League. So it wasn't this thing that it's become. I think rel- I think I think in a relative sense, yeah, you you could you could kind of say that. I like mean, the status I mean, of athletes as amateurs, and now they're beginning to be paid. Right, that's a different. Right, there's almost this old school, almost like a pastoral element to the economics of the students like the student athlete is this throwback to an older version of capitalism right yeah and uh like it's a further deterritorialization you know athletes are now being paid money and can be paid for their likeness all this stuff this sort of decoding process yeah and i think that there's something similar with with professional wrestling obviously wrestling it's one of the oldest sports, if you will, theoretically. And as obviously there's Greco-Roman wrestling, but I'm, I'm sure wrestling predated. You can see it in Gilgamesh. There's a wrestling match between Gilgamesh and Enkidu when they first encounter, right? But wrestling as a work, as a staged simulation of physical combat and prowess, along with the kind of dramatic flair of protagonist and and villain that begins kind of with the carnivals and so it's inextricably tied with trying to to get money out of viewers and this is why the language of mark still persists today right an easy mark someone literally who was like marked with chalk on their backside like this is someone that who can be parted with their money easily we still have that language in, in wrestling today, right? A mark is someone who kind of takes the simulation too real. And obviously there's a way of overdoing it and being a smart mark. So you know it's fake, but you sort of invest in it anyway. Right, yeah. in a I know very well. Inflated well way. Yeah, right. Yeah, you're still you're still paying money for tickets and stuff like that, right? And there is a way of being a smart mark can keep you from immersing in the spectacle which is precisely the reason why wrestling theoretically still persists is there is a way in which like we watch a cinematic feature, we watch a movie. We're not constantly like thinking to ourselves that this is all fiction. And there's a sense in which like overthinking things and theorizing as we're watching, even if we may do it after the fact and get some joy out of it when we're watching it is a way of, of dissecting it that kills it, kills the spectacle. Last thing I would say, I guess is, you know, maybe this line about love and money and, and the, the, the stuff about love comes back to the end of Apocalypse. Lawrence, his little six points, his, his kind of manifesto. So if the reader, the listener is interested, they can go find that. But yeah, there's this discussion of giving love and, and taking love, which still is even talks about, right? Giving everything and or taking everything and not giving anything back. There is this sense that it, it reminds me a little bit of Lacan maybe there's a way in which love and money could be, you know, an equal footing in the the phrase, you know, love is giving what one does not have to someone who doesn't want it, right? There's a sense in which, you know, what does it mean to give money if we don't have it? What is the sense of having there? And then, of course, it's not the money that the person we're giving it to wants. They want what they can get with the money or something like that, right? That part of the equation actually obviously makes sense, but what is it to to not 
have the money we're giving, whether we think of this in terms of loans or debts, or whether we think about it in terms of the notion of having, is it not the social relation that money represents or institutes? Is it not the the very fact that money sort of owns us, blah, blah, blah. I don't know, right? You could obviously take that in, in the way you want. But that's that was the thing that struck me was this. Um... It's kind of interesting that something like, you know, love or grief would transcend value. It's worthless. It doesn't have any exchange value. Possible, yeah. That would kind of have to take us back to uh, to looking at a lot of different references, obviously <laughs> Encore, which is what we were just talking about, the Seminar 20. But even this discussion of sort of the gospel of love turning into the regime of judgment in Revelation, right, in, in Apocalypse. This is why Deleuze, in this paradoxical way, agrees with Lawrence that this is not the same type of man, the same type of man, the John that wrote John of the Gospels is not the same type of man as John of Patmos. But then at the end, he kind of paradoxically twists it around. It's precisely because they're not the same type of man that they have an even more intricate unity in this transformation of the gospel of love into the, the gospel of judgment. That's a much more Nietzschean statement than it appears because it's very much, as we saw in Nietzschean philosophy, right? That it's this, it's this idea of sort of, Jesus bringing the glad tidings of love that that in essence is the very root and cause of this outpouring of of resentment, which is the analysis of pity. We would pity ourselves or others out of love or self-love, but in fact, there's so much of the spirit of cruelty and revenge in this pity. But obviously we could we could go. You go on and we'd have to multiply the references, but I think um, I think we may be able to stop there, if you will. Yeah, that'll wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Chair and of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is this is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thank you.